Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. This is DeRay, and welcome to Pod of the People. In this episode, we're joined by Najim Paul de Rolay, the leader of Teach for Haiti. What we've come to realize is the classroom has become the battleground for Haitian identity and for Haitian autonomy and sovereignty. And we want to be able to reclaim that and restore it in the ways that it can truly be of use to our people, for us and by us. We have the news with me, Brittany Clinton-Sam. It's our 100th episode. Woo-woo. Sort of wild. So many things that I've learned, so many things we've all learned, and so much more to go. But before we start, I just wanted to ask the question of, like, are you willing to follow your curiosity? One of the things that people ask me all the time is, how do I know so much? They're like, Teray, you're an expert, da-da-da. And I tell them two things. One is, like, they can know as much as me, that, like, I don't have a lock on the knowledge in a way that they can't. The second is that you gotta be willing to follow your curiosity all the way to the end. I ask a lot of questions. I do a lot of readings on issues because I'm just trying to understand better. And I've been in some rooms where people think that like the knowledge just like happens, that they that like they won't ask any question or they won't tease it out and it'll just occur. And like, that's not the way the world works. You have to be willing to ask the questions and follow your curiosity all the way to the end. You know, another thing that I tell young organizers is like, you need to know one part of the system really well, because you knowing the way one part of the system works actually helps you think about how all of the system works, like how everything work around you. There's so many transferable skills once you understand one thing well. So that's my word for this week. Let's do it. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Packetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Samsway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith III, aye, aye, aye. father of two, diaper-changing, diaper-changing hey. aficionado, out here, bang, bang, <laughs> yes. boom, boom. Welcome back. And this is Dre at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. 100 episodes, everybody, 100 episodes. I was going to say, Clint, you came back just in time for our 100th episode ever. Just in time. I was so sad to have missed the live shows, but I listened to them and I laughed and I cried and I learned and I was like, wow, is this what, is this what everybody feels like every week listening? I feel so, I'm so, I'm like laughing while I'm walking down the street and people looking at me like, like, wow, this is quality content. I was like, oh man. I had no idea. Look at us. Um, Like a hundred, I've recorded a hundred episodes and I had no idea this was any good. (laughs) Who knew? Who knew? We're actually pretty good at this. I mean, but listen, y'all, a hundred episodes, two Webby Awards, multiple live shows later, we're like all still here. The band ain't broke up. Nope. <laughs> yep. No we're breaks. We're having a good time talking about things that matter. It's it's so incredible. What is what has been you all's favorite moment from the last 100 episodes? There are a couple. One is I remember having to convince Brittany and Sam to do it. And being like, please be on the phone for this. I'm going to launch a podcast thing, but I, I want to do it with you guys. Like, please be, you know, like begging. 
and we did the first couple episodes and it worked, but like it wasn't clear that the podcast was going to be a thing and then it turned into a thing. And I remember calling Clint because Sam couldn't make it for recording and like Brittany, I don't know, it was like a mess. It was like not going to really be a podcast. Oh, I think Brittany had a speech. I, was, I couldn't make it. I was So out. I'm like, hey, Clint, can out. you be on yeah. the podcast? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, well, like you, th- you thought it was like next week. And I'm like, in 30 minutes. We've been together ever since. <laughs> I was at the gym. I was on the treadmill. I was sweating. So organized. The last one was, I don't remember when I started the I.I.I., but I love it. I like can't imagine not calling you I.I.I. It's a thing now. We can't not do it anymore. It really is a strong part of the brand. Yeah, it's so tough to put down uh, a single favorite moment, but but I know that over the course of 100 episodes, I've learned so much. And I get to hop on the phone and and video chat with like three dear friends and people who are not only friends but thought partners and and just to I feel like I've grown alongside uh, people who are uh, committed to to building a better world. And I also just want to shout out not only shout out this podcast but like shout out to podcasting in general because one thing I really appreciate about this form is that it allows for a different level of nuanced conversation that isn't often afforded in the social media space. I think that when you're listening to someone, you can qualify things. People can hear your inflection. People can hear your tone. People can hear the way that you're speaking about something, which I think creates a different set of dynamics in a world with a whole lot of complex issues that don't often fit into 280 characters or can often be misrepresented. I've found that podcasting is a really fantastic medium, and it's made better by the fact that I get to do it with three brilliant people. Yeah, I'm sort of uh, along those lines. I've really learned about the power of podcasting, right? I, this was not a, a medium that I had exposure to. Like, I, I hadn't listened to other podcasts before. And, you know, I'm sort of inspired by the power of this platform in particular to to be able to create space for conversations that, you know, like you said, Clint, I think would be very difficult to have in the type of uh, nuanced and deep ways that, that I think you can have with this kind of a platform, this kind of a medium. Uh, the other piece that that is a powerful moment uh, and sort of a teachable moment, I think, for me was uh, doing the first live show, right? I think that like I had no idea yeah, that what crazy. that was going to be like. Like, I don't know if, you know, I was just going to freeze up. Like, I, like, I had no idea what was going to happen. And I think it was inspiring to see people like actually like turn out and to listen to to us talking with one another like we would just talk on the phone. And I think that that was uh, it taught me about like the power that this platform can provide. And and I think the responsibility that that not only we have, but I think podcasters in general have to to really leverage this platform for good. And I think that I hope that this can be like a model that that others uh, can use as well. Yeah, I have so many favorite memories. The live, the first live show is definitely one of them. I also, um, I love the birthdays. Like, I, I love talking to Clint's mom and my brother. Like, those surprises oh my goodness, were really I great. I forgot about that. Yeah, the birthdays. Remember, wild. you would have people really call his surprises. Mom, was, I was like, like <laughs> is that my brother? <laughs> we got, those oh, were man. like last minute surprises. She was so hyped. Yes. But they were fantastic. And then I think, you know, I think the last thing for me is every time we get an email or a DM or a tweet from somebody or somebody sees us on the street, and not only do they say they listen, but, you know, they talk about a different conversation that they had with their child or with their family that they never would have had without listening to the pod or something they went and did differently at work or differently in their community because they learned something or were activated or inspired by the conversation we have. Like, that is the whole point, right? It's an immense honor and privilege to be able to activate people towards something bigger than themselves and to do it with three of my very best brothers in the world. It's happy 100, y'all. Happy 100. Happy 100. 100. 
don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. I want to talk about something that is most certainly urgent and important. So in America, 1.25 million people have type 1 diabetes. What we also know is that about 25% of them are actually forced to ration their insulin because the drug is so unaffordable. That means that over 300,000 people every single year are routinely taking less than they are prescribed because they cannot afford the insulin that they need. A full supply of the drug can actually cost up to $1,000 a month, which is wild, right? Incredibly unacceptable. The House Oversight and Government Reform Committee has recently launched an investigation into rising drug prices um, across the board, but insulin is an especially significant one. There's a man named Alex Azar, who is Trump's Secretary of Health and Human Services. Before that, he was the president of the Eli Lilly Corporation, which is one of the country's leading producers of drugs, including insulin. 
Under his leadership, the company more than doubled the price of Humalog, which is an insulin analog that they produce. Suddenly, that guy becomes the head of health and human services for this particular administration. Conflict of interest, to say the least. So I want to read to you just a bit from the letter that was written to the author of a New Yorker article about this recently. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was five years old, but I only started having problems getting insulin in 2008 during the recession when I was 11 and 12. My mom and dad divorced around that time. My mom also took a buyout from her job at GM. She had worked on the line building Cadillacs. After the buyout, she took whatever odd job she could find. My worst experience was when I was in college, three hours from home. My pediatrician was still giving me samples, but at a certain point, I aged out. I remember my freshman year in 2014, after winter break, I picked up a package from her and there was a note saying it was the last time she could send me anything. I didn't know what was going to come next. I was so scared. I lost a lot of weight that year, about 20 pounds. When you don't have insulin, you can't eat much because you can't correct your blood sugar. So I was barely eating. I was supposed to take four or five shots of insulin a day and I was only taking two or three. I was lethargic all the time. I was rationing just so I could live. Now I work at a call center. I have Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance through my job and I can go to a primary care doctor and an endocrinologist. But even with insurance, my insulin costs $1,000 for a 30-day supply. I can't tell you the last time I was able to fill a prescription. I just wanted to make sure that we're placing this conversation in human terms because the numbers are scary. The conflict of interest with this particular administration is immense, and I'm glad that it's being investigated. But there are 300,000 plus people every single day that are having to ration their insulin just to live. This is completely unacceptable, especially in a country as wealthy as ours. So one thing that struck me in in the article was this part where they talked about how roughly a quarter of people with diabetes take less than the amount of insulin that they are prescribed because the drug is so expensive. And as folks know, uh, my wife and I have had uh, another baby, and we have a baby girl. Uh, She's about two weeks old now. We spent a lot of time in the hospital. There were a few complications, and one night we were in the emergency room. Everything ended up fine, but we were there as a precaution. And being in the emergency room, for anyone who's been there, is such a profound reminder of the failures of our healthcare system in in that so many people end up in the emergency room because they are not given uh, or don't have access to or can't afford so many of the things that they need that are easily preventable. This example with insulin is such a such an important and profound example of the way that our healthcare system is is failing so many people. So my grandmother was diabetic and she uh, needed insulin every day and I would go and get the insulin. She helped raise us. I would like go get the needle out of this little tin can. And I never imagined, I like actually never thought about how much it costs as a kid. It was like I had no clue. But in preparing to talk about this today, I read all these stories of there's this one story of a mom who had to bury her son because he just, they couldn't afford the insulin. Parents and kids who are sharing insulin because they're rationing it out. And there's this one story where a woman, she almost went to a diabetic coma because she didn't take enough of her ration that they were sharing, her and her daughter. And it's a reminder of the failure of a market ideology that the market economy like sets prices that then dictate like 
supply and demand. And we should just guarantee a set of things. We should guarantee that people have the medicine to keep them alive. Like that shouldn't be dictated by who can afford it and who can't. We should guarantee that like people can eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That shouldn't be dictated by who can afford it and can't. And this is one of those things where it's like there is a cure. The intent behind the cure was that everybody could have it. It like is a cure that we can actually mass produce. So it's not like you got to destroy like 25,000 islands to get it. It's like we can actually figure it out. Uh, and we actually have made a choice not to because of like a, an obsession with the idea that the market has to be unregulated and unfettered. And sort of the reality about all markets is that there's no pure market. Like all, every single market is regulated to some degree. It's like it is manipulated. Like that is what regulations mean. And there is no pure market. And in this case, we could just say that we will guarantee that people have the dosage. And nobody's like, it's not like you're taking insulin and doing something else with it. It's like you're literally using it uh, because you need it to stay alive. So uh, this to me is a reminder of the guarantees that we should be making in society and that we're not. Yeah, you know, like you said, the failure of the market is clear in this case and for so many of the other sort of basic needs uh, in our society, you know, with the wealthiest nation in the world. And yet when you look at what things are actually uh, getting much, much more expensive and out of reach for folks, uh, it's things like healthcare, it's things like rent, right? Having a place to live, it's it's things like education, being able to go to school, to go to college and afford that uh, so that you can get a job, right? It's so many things uh, that are basic uh, that should be guaranteed or not. And you look at the things that the prices are actually sort of going down, the things that are getting cheaper. Uh, well, those are things like electronics, right? There are things like toys and TVs, things that aren't necessarily as important as, for example, having insulin or having health care. Uh, and you know that is what our market is creating, what our economy is uh, incentivizing. And it requires an intervention from the government uh, in order to make sure that people are able to, to access basic needs and survive. Uh, and, and I think that that is not like a radical idea, like that's not some sort of um, sort of left-wing ideology, right? Like that is actually something that uh, many nations uh, do and that should be a basic expectation, especially in a nation as wealthy as ours. So for my news, I'm doing a story that came out this week by Troy McCullum in the Washington Post. So in 2014, uh, it was the pinnacle of home ownership in the United States. Nearly half of all black families owned a home, according to census data. And, and what's important to keep in mind, though, is that this number was still a third less than the housing rates for their white counterparts. Nonetheless, as compared to the historically low numbers that preceded it, this was seen by many advocates as a good thing and people felt like there was real momentum to build on. Uh, but over the past decade, the real estate fortunes of black folks have pretty profoundly reversed course uh, despite a strengthening economy, including record low unemployment, higher wages for black workers, home ownership levels for that group have dropped incrementally almost every year since 2004. It fell to 43% in 2017, which pretty much erased all of the gains that had been made since the passage of the Fair Housing Act in 1968. The decline comes even as whites, Asian Americans, and Latinos uh, slowly seen gains in home buying, according to a report done by Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies. Nationally, 63.9% of Americans owned a home in 2017, the white home ownership rate was 72.9%, which was up from 72.2% a year earlier. Hispanic home ownership rate reached 46.2%, up from 45.5% in 2016. And so it's going up for all of these groups, but it is not going up 
for black folks. Uh, so all this is happening for a number of reasons, including the lack of affordable housing in some areas, as in addition to the huge amounts of student debt and lack of wealth that folks have. But uh, as you can imagine, this is not the only set of issues, uh, and discrimination is playing a huge role. Uh, we've talked a little bit about this before, but black testers who are posing as potential home buyers, usually for the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development, go out and sort of test to see if people are discriminating. Uh, they are often asked to produce documents and jump through hoops that their counterparts are not asked to. Uh, additionally, even black families with higher credit scores and higher comparative wealth are often denied or given lower quality mortgages than their white counterparts. An example of that is back in 2006, before the big financial crisis, black families earning more than $200,000 annually were more likely on average to be given a subprime loan than white families making $30,000 a year. I bring this up because, you know, we are in the midst of the 2020 primary uh, and there are conversations that are going on about the relationship of inequality to race, the relationship of inequality to class. And I'm always confused by these these conversations because it, it feels very clear. It is both, right? It is both race and it is class and that one's class position uh, is negatively compounded or made to be less distressing by their race, right? So we can acknowledge that uh, $15 minimum wage and Medicare for all and all of these universal progressive policies are good. They are good. And they disproportionately help people of color oftentimes. And yet, as all of the data shows, those policies are often not enough because of discrimination that exists, because of the history of the wealth gap, because of all of the, the sort of the history of, of discrimination against the black community. And I think that as, as the 2020 primary goes on, we have to be mindful of this, this weird thing, like, is it race? Is it class? It's both. And it is both in a way that is worse and compounded by the fact that, you know, someone is part of a historically underrepresented, under-resourced group of people. Clint, I'm really grateful you made the emphasis that you did because that's what was most striking to me. It wasn't just the numbers. It was how much a black person in the United States of America could do all of the things that they were told to do, to go to college, to make a great salary, to uh, improve their credit score, to save for that down payment, to go after a traditional loan, to take advantage of those uh, first-time home buyer programs and other incentives, and still that all of those things, if you are black, still do not open the doors to that home for you in a way that it does for other people. The fact that, as you said, in 2006, black families earning more than $200,000 a year were more likely on average to be given a subprime loan than a white family making not $150,000, not $100,000, $30,000 a year. That is proof positive that it is not just race or just class, that it is and always has been both. We know that places like Wells Fargo and others have been found guilty of targeting Black and Latinx communities for subprime mortgages. We know that the kind of discrimination that you just talked about in those studies has come out in housing discrimination lawsuits, and yet it doesn't seem that the tide of things is actually changing. It's actually getting worse. So the question is, who is going to hold banking in institutions accountable for these behaviors and these trends in a real and sustainable way over the long haul so that black families in particular can finally catch up. And I'm reminded that, you know, when we talk about homeownership, you know, historically, you know, white folks didn't have to jump through all these hoops to get a home, right? And even now reading this article, 
you know, seeing all of the hoops that folks had jumped through, uh, all of the things that they had to do, extra things in order to get a home and still get denied compared to white folks who were making, you know, less income and had the same credit scores, for example, still get denied a home. And it just reminded me of, you know, the, the legacy of homeownership uh, and how that legacy was sort of created in the white community. And it wasn't through hard work and all of these other things that were sort of told. Uh, in many cases, folks were just given homes, right? The Homestead Acts. You know, they literally gave white folks homes all across the West Coast. Black folks were almost entirely excluded from that. You know, and now we're looking today and seeing similar forces are at play in terms of discrimination. And so, you know, when we think about how to address this issue, I'm reminded that, you know, homeownership has been created in the past for some communities. And the solutions that were implemented to create homeownership then uh, oftentimes are not even on the table now. Uh, the second thing that I'm reminded in terms of homeownership is just the connection between homeownership and the wealth gap. A report from Demos called The Racial Wealth Gap, Why Policy Matters looked at the relationship between homeownership and the racial wealth gap, uh, and they found that if we were to close the homeownership gap, uh, it would result in, in a 31% reduction in the wealth gap uh, and a $32,000 increase uh, in the median wealth of black households. Uh, so going from about $7,000 in median wealth to going to about $40,000 in median wealth. Uh, and on top of that, uh, if we accounted for the fact that homeownership in black communities often doesn't appreciate in value to the same extent and, and we're able to address that issue, that would close it further by 16%. So a huge proportion of the wealth gap is accounted for by the homeownership gap. Uh, and so this has to be central to any type of economic advancement or economic policy that is focused on actually closing the economic divide between black and white communities. You know, here's what this makes me think of is that I sometimes think that we confuse the change in the conversation with the change in outcomes. And this is a reminder that we are talking about the wealth gap in ways that I don't think we've ever had a national conversation about. The outcomes are actually not changing in the same way the conversation's changing, which isn't meant to be like a dire sort of statement, but it is uh, to remind us to stay laser focused on the outcomes. So we think about what this administration is doing to take away some of the protections in the housing administration, because Ben Carson is over there in housing, which is like, you know, might as well, there isn't a housing administration this go around. And it just reminds me of like focusing on the outcomes. And like, we actually can't confuse the fact that like the conversations change with the change of outcomes. Uh, to this question of like, what do we do? And we, we've said this before, but it's a reminder that like, it's hard to buy a house when you're married in debt. And it's hard to even talk about debt when we don't talk about like intergenerational debt and what that means. We talked before about full day pre-K in DC leading to the highest maternal employment, both in the country and in the history of DC. Like those sort of things are unlikely. So debt reduction, taking out the discrimination factor in loans, Clint talked about a little bit, but it is still fascinating that even in 2016, 17, 18, that the same studies replicate the same discrimination or they like uncover the same discrimination that lenders and banks like won't tell black people the special deals, like literally just aren't helping people in the process and, and how that plays out and trying to figure out like how do we make sure the structure actually accounts for these things and like what can we do structurally? It would be interesting for all the conversation about reparations that's happening with the presidential election for them to not only put out these sweeping statements about inequality, but actually, like, I want to hear the presidential candidates talk about these issues in, like, a real earnest way that we haven't. We've heard people sort of talk about reparations writ large, uh, but then you're like, well, what does that actually mean in real life? And it, it, it becomes this wishy-washy thing at the candidate level. So I'm hoping that we can actually get some of the nitty-gritty of these conversations to the public space.
So mine started with a tweet that I saw from the LA Times. And the tweet was, schools are meant to be safe places for students, but at 89% of L.A. County's public high schools, someone has been killed within walking distance, leaving students traumatized. And I immediately thought about, like, my work in education, me, Clint, and Brittany all were teachers. Sam has worked with young people in communities who were affected by these issues, who were students, and and wanted to bring this here to just talk about that because that's just like a shocking statistic. But also to think about what we do about it is that there was a period in ed reform where it was like the classroom is the end-all be-all. That like classrooms can change everything. It is a thing. And I think what people now are more honest about is that classrooms are magical places, can do magical things. Communities also have to change in fundamental ways, and we need to put the resources in communities to allow them to change. It isn't actually the work in classrooms. And like, what does it mean that so many students have PTSD, so many people have literally watched people die, or they have been afraid that they might be killed? And like, schools can be hubs in communities, but we actually need to like invest resources in places so they don't have to deal with that trauma in the first place. I also, in the article, sort of talks about the resiliency of kids, and you know that is like a hot word in the ever-form space. The reality is our kids shouldn't have to be resilient. They shouldn't have to have all these skills to bounce back a million times, and we shouldn't praise it in the sense that we're like, oh my God, they got these skills. It's like, we should actually be making sure that young people live in communities, that anybody, that everybody lives in communities where like the trauma doesn't happen. They highlight this one particular school, the Academy for Multilingual Arts and Science at Mervyn M. DeMalley High, where... 105 kids have been killed in the time span that they they look at. And I'll just read this passage from the article. It says, Jason Powell knows he can't begin teaching his English and music classes at DeMalley at 88th and San Pedro streets until the kids can address the latest violence in their lives. Over the last five years, 105 people have been killed within a mile of the campus, the highest number surrounding any public high school in the county. 10 of the victims were 18 or younger. And it's just like, That is shocking. It'd be interesting to see this same analysis in other cities. And I'll leave it to other people to talk about some of the race disparities and and things like that that the study unpacked. But I just wanted to bring this here, somebody whose career was in public education before focusing on policing. I think it's also really important to talk about the kind of burden that we place on teachers in these situations. All of us know that we educate young people in the context of their community, which means that teachers, as essentially frontline responders to these young people, have begun to talk about a form of teaching called trauma-informed care. It's kind of hot right now in the education space, and it's starting to get out to more spaces, and folks are getting everything from degrees in it to, you know, one- or two-hour seminars for their teachers – And it's certainly necessary in the short term because there is an immediate need to acknowledge and address the trauma that exists in the classroom and to give young people the skills and the coping mechanisms that they need to be able to get back to their learning and take care of themselves. But ultimately, that is just a Band-Aid. The amount of death that so many students are seeing is not at all normal. And we're not just talking about mass shootings here, which is traumatic enough. We're also talking about a level of unrelenting and consistent death that a lot of young people in low-income circumstances have to deal with. And the only proper long-term response is the curbing of gun violence, which we know has everything to do with gun control and with creating healthy communities from the ground up. We can't just keep asking teachers to take on the additional burden. And we can't just keep asking young people to learn how to better deal with their trauma. We should be eliminating that level of trauma from the very beginning. With this article, 
was a reminder of is all of the people that are also impacted by that violence. Um, the students who have to walk past the places where that violence happened uh, and are re-traumatized, which then affects a, a range of other things uh, from you know students' health, right, mental health, uh, to academic performance, uh, which then affects the health of the economy overall. So all of these things are sort of interconnected, and, and the root of them is the issue of violence and the ways in which, particularly in America, it's so easy for people to get a gun and to use that in ways that are incredibly devastating in communities. I'm hopeful uh, now more than ever that we can actually start to make progress towards addressing it because the House, uh, for the first time since 1994, passed gun control legislation uh, by passing universal background checks. Now, of course, we will see what happens in the Senate, uh, and it's going to be an uphill struggle. Probably won't happen before 2020 when hopefully we'll get Trump out of office. Um, but it's just it's wild to me that it's taken this long for the House to pass gun control legislation, despite all of these things uh, that have been happening for quite some time. Like this didn't just start recently, but we're just finding out the real cost in, in so many different spheres that, that this violence is really having. Yeah, and I think this is something that can't be talked about enough. There's an estimated 3 million American children who witness gun violence every year, uh, according to Every Town USA and their research. And as we know, witnessing a shooting and being proximate to a shooting has a devastating impact on every facet of your life. You know, that folks who are exposed to, to violence, crime, physical, sexual, emotional abuse are more likely to abuse drugs, are more likely to abuse alcohol, suffer from depression, anxiety, PTSD, have difficulties in school, and engage in criminal activities themselves. I think something that the sociologist Bruce Western does really well is talk about how we often frame things in the context of victim and offender without recognizing that who the victim is and who the offender is, is often a result of sort of arbitrary nature of circumstance rather than moral criteria. It's just far more complicated than that. And I think that these kids are participants often in an ecosystem that has been historically underinvested in and as, as a result of hypersegregation, as a result of poverty, is, is infested with crime and is infested with violence uh, in ways that have, have nothing to do with them. And so, so this is a, a really important thing. And we often in, in the public discourse are talking about the people who are killed. The first thing that I'm so used to thinking about is like how many people were killed. Um, but I'm not always thinking about one, how many people were, were injured and how they live with the physical and emotional and psychological impact of that for a long time, but also how many people bore witness to and were proximate to that that event of gun violence and how is that going to impact them. And so this, when you start to think in those terms, the impact of gun violence becomes so much larger than simply the names of folks who, who lost their lives. So my news is uh, a different note, and this is one of the wildest stories that I have read. Uh, it's an article that's in the Washington Post this week, and it's called How a Black Man Outsmarted a Neo-Nazi Group and Became Their New Leader. So you may have seen Black Klansmen. What? Isn't that a movie? Right. Yeah, you may have seen Black Klansmen. Well, this is like the part two. So this is a story about James Hart Stern, uh, a black man who... Back uh, several years ago, he actually was in prison in Mississippi. He was there for wire fraud. And while in prison, he was actually a cellmate of a Ku Klux Klan grand wizard, Edgar Ray Killen, who was convicted in the 1964 killings of three civil rights workers uh, during the Freedom Summer. But he was able to actually take a bad situation and managed to trick the Ku Klux Klan grand wizard 
into granting him the power of attorney over his life story and estate. And then upon leaving prison, took that newfound power and closed his organization. So from then, he used that connection with the Grand Wizard to reach out to another white supremacist of the National Socialist Movement. Now, this is an organization that was involved in the Charlottesville uh, rally. Their members tend to actually go out in like full-on like Nazi uniforms. So he contacts this man, Jeff Shope. After the Charlottesville rally, their organization was sued, uh, and apparently he thought that he might be held responsible for the actions of their members, uh, and apparently he unsurprisingly thought their members might commit you know, a violent crime. Uh, so he was able to convince Shope to hand over control of that organization to him, to a black man, uh, under the guise of it somehow protecting them from liability under this lawsuit. As soon as that happened, Stern was able to take control of the organization, uh, and now he's saying he's going to use that control uh, in order to begin uh, sharing information uh, with their followers uh, that's designed to counter their white supremacist views. Uh, he says that he wants to change the website uh, to be a website uh, done in collaboration with uh, Jewish organizations and Jewish leaders across the country uh, to be a space that is actually designed to, to share information on the history of the Holocaust and information designed to counter white supremacist beliefs with their followers. Uh, and so, you know, it, this is just a, a wild story. Um, I think we talked in a previous episode about uh, an organization in Germany that created a, uh, a Nazi trap uh, where they created a, a place for uh, Nazis to essentially out themselves uh, and identify themselves and then use that against them. Well, this is sort of the, the next level of that and, and is really an, an exciting uh, an interesting story, and I'm looking forward to seeing how this evolves as they begin to implement this new plan. We always talk about how people need to, uh, you need folks who are willing to do the, the work of justice on the outside as well as on the inside, but this has taken uh, doing that work on the inside to a whole nother level. Usually I'm thinking like, we need judges, we need Congress members. I don't think about us needing uh, members of the Klan. The hate is still pretty organized, and just because it's not on the news every day and there aren't rallies every day doesn't mean that people aren't organized. I think that Trump's base is a reminder of just how uh, easy to mobilize those people are. So this is like an interesting story where somebody played the game against them, but just a reminder of that the threat is still real. I mean, to this point, the Southern Poverty Law Center just reported that organized hate is at an all-time high, and I think organized is an important adjective here because obviously hate has existed since this country was quote-unquote founded and it wasn't always this well organized but there's literally an all-time high according to the southern poverty law center of the number of organized hate groups in the united states of america uh, we also know that the day of the 2016 election hate crimes rose in this country and they've continued to rise that's the news hey you're listening to pod save the people stay tuned there's more to come the Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop.
Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. And now my conversation with Najin, who leads Teach for Haiti. Najin, thanks so much for joining us today on Pate of the People. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Now, we've been together for a couple of days, and I've learned so much about APA, way more than I knew before. Yes. But I wanted to start with, how would you describe APA? I would describe Ansei as a movement that is equipping and igniting a new generation of civic leaders for the four million children of Haiti. Our focus is on the classroom as a unit of execution, but the community as a unit of change. Because what we've come to realize is the classroom has become the battleground for Haitian identity and for Haitian autonomy and sovereignty. And we want to be able to reclaim that and restore it in the ways that it can truly be of use to our people, for us and by us. Because unfortunately, people have taken over the classroom and taken over our education system in a way that's actually not producing neither the results nor the citizens that our country deserves. Now, what is your relationship to Haiti and the classroom? Like, you could be doing a lot of other things. You could be doing education in a host of other places. Like, why Haiti? Why education? Why Haiti? Because it is home. I was born here in Haiti at the age of four years old. I left, moved to the United States. And at that time in the United States, you were not necessarily looking to tell people that you were a Haitian a person or that you had immigrated from Haiti because this was the time pre-Wyclef Jean waving his flag. This is the time before people actually even understood Haiti and all of its nuance, complexity, and, and mightiness. But what I'm grateful for is even though I was receiving taunts and teasing for being Haitian, my parents were equipping their children to understand why it should be a badge of honor and a badge of pride to speak on Haiti and to come from that nation as a teenager, having a chance to come back to Haiti with my father and starting to visit the different places where he once taught as a school teacher before he became an Episcopal priest and realizing that I am not the only one, right, who loves education, especially because it is so valued and so prized in Haitian society. Realizing that as early as 1806, our constitution said that all kids deserve an equal access to a great quality education. But then fast forward to the early 2000s and realizing that only 30% of kids are getting through primary school and trying to figure out how we had strayed so far from this proclamation of education as a human right in 1806 to only 30% of kids getting to primary school and only 1% getting to university by the 2000s. I also realized, in my opinion, that I have a civic moral duty to return home and to link arms with others who've been involved in education equity for many years. My path was very much pointed towards returning home and showing the world and showing our own fellow Haitians what it looks like for education to be the gateway towards the real liberation and the next cultural revolution of our nation. 
One of the themes of this visit has been the Haitian Revolution. So many people have talked about the Haitian Revolution and its importance. So many students have talked about it. It's it's just been a real centerpiece of this visit. And I've learned so much about the Haitian Revolution. How does the revolution influence you or your work or the way you think about the world? The Haitian Revolution is monumental in the ways that it caused a ripple effect, right, around the world. But one of the key things that we must mention is that it resulted in the creation of the first black republic of the world. It is the only successful slave revolt in world history, resulting in the independence of a republic. Toussaint Louverture said, I will be captured by the French and you will chop down the tree of liberty, but these roots will grow back and they are prosperous and they are many. Now, can you walk us through program design? It seems like it's a little bit of teacher prep, a little bit of teacher recruitment. Can you just help flesh out like the components of APA, the program? I would say the ways that we think about program design is first on what it looks like to come together and to model community as part of this organization, as part of this movement. And so that first piece of our approach is about recruiting those who are in the teaching profession and also those who are new to the profession to come together um, as part of a two-year fellowship cohort. Why we really wanted to make sure we were recruiting existing teachers is because we understand that there have been people who've been working in the trenches for so many years and who also are able to help us unlock some of the solutions towards getting towards this mission, right, of of the community as the unit of change and the classroom as our unit of execution. And so part one is recruitment. Part two is working with existing schools, primarily grades K through six, um, and making sure that if the teacher is not already in a classroom in one of our partner communities, that they're placed in a school that needs to fill a gap. And then the third is actually this two-year fellowship. We want to make sure that it's not just about changing how pedagogy works, but also pairing it with this idea of transformational leadership. What does it look like for the exceptional teacher to be an exceptional civic leader, to teach in a really effective way, in a very contextualized way, in a way that's really authentic and respectful of the assets within our culture and our customs? But then also, what does it look like for that person to be equipped with the leadership skills to act well beyond the four walls of his or her classroom? And what is the context of the education system in Haiti right now? And and what do you think it can be? Hmm. So the context of Haitian education now is one in which where you are born, who you know, and what you have access to is a predetermined. It basically tells you exactly where you're going to end up when it comes to access and Um, matriculation through different grades. And every Haitian kid has the right to an education per the Constitution, right? Per the Constitution. As early as 1806, we said that that's the right. But that's not in practice. That is not in practice whatsoever. And so in the last 30 to 40 years, you have access to schooling completely changed because instead of the vast majority of schools here being public institutions, now they're by and large private institutions. Specifically, 88% of schools here in Haiti are private institutions, which immediately creates a barrier in terms of access. You have a lot of people who don't have access because of the cost. And I think sometimes we have in our minds that private institutions equals fairly good or even better quality than public schools. Unfortunately, here in this context, there is so little accountability and oversight when you run as a private institution that the quality is sometimes worse. You see that there's 30% of kids getting through primary school, 10% are going to get through high school, and only 1% will get to university. Not complete university, but 1% will get to university. That's wild. And what about the landscape of teacher training, teacher prep? What's that like? 
And so teacher prep the same way, especially when it comes to primary school, there's no credentials. There's no certification required to teach at the primary school level, especially in the private school system. And so by and large, we now are seeing statistics as low as 20% of primary school teachers who are formally equipped and trained on an ongoing basis to do their job well. And so all of this kind of confluence of factors, in addition to the fact that French is still the language of instruction. There are still textbooks, there's still curriculum, there's still testing that is focused on, even though it's an official language here in Haiti, a foreign language because 100% of people speak Creole, but the best estimates show that about 10% of Haitians are speaking French. And so in addition to the infrastructure and access challenges, you also have a barrier towards actually understanding and moving forward with what you're learning in the classroom. There's actually quite a bit of the systemic injustice of our education system that's quite intentional, and that was created by design to make sure that there's a gap between the haves and the have-nots. And so I, I use the example of Creole and French because every research, every study, all the examples around the world have told us that without mother tongue instruction, you're basically setting up a generation of children for failure. And I thought I heard you say that you can be a K-6 teacher just like by being a, an adult and alive, like you don't need like a credential or anything to, to teach. Is that, did I hear you right? That's right. By being alive, by knowing somebody who needs somebody Is to be Is that in hired. public and private schools or just in private schools? That's in private schools. And so through the public school system, there's kind of a, a, a nomination process where you have to receive a letter of nomination and then be certified, quote unquote, by the Ministry of Education. But even then, if you know somebody who knows somebody, there's avenues to get towards that as well. Got it. We had a situation here in Haiti where there was such intent and there was such purpose behind the ways that teachers were prepared that in the 60s, 1960s and 1970s, some of our teachers were exported to French-speaking African nations, Senegal, Côte d'Ivoire. That is the caliber of the teaching force that we once had. A lot of the intellectuals, what we would today call the middle class, were actually exiled as part of the end and during the dictatorship of the Duvalier reign. So for about 30 plus years during our history, they were seen as the threat. And then on top of that, the Ministry of Education started to lose funding after the fall of the dictatorship. And so in addition to losing incredibly talented human capital, we also started to lose funding for public institutions. And so people came in to fill the gap. That's when you start to see an increase in the number of private institutions, but it was not paired with accountability. It was not paired with quality standards. How do you think about success in terms of achievement? When it comes to student results, 30% of kids are passing in general in rural Haiti in particular at the primary school level. For the last two years in a row, we've had 86% of our students passing on time and on grade level. Then we have real-time data on 66 partner schools, over 100 classrooms that are showing these are the teacher actions that are leading to these student behaviors that are leading to this correlation on student achievement. So that data is also really powerful for us because it not only shows us kind of the North Star and where we're heading, but also some of the impact and some of the, the behavior changes that are happening at the student, at the teacher level, um, and how to make it classroom and school-wide. Because one of the other things that I should mention about our belief in community and collective action is we never wanna think of a partner school as only having one or two teacher leaders. We think of every teacher and all of our partner schools as part of the APA movement because of the different strategic ways that we include them. Given the context that you laid out, what do you think comes next? What's APA's role and what comes next? Like how do we, what's the moving forward look like? So there's two pieces in terms of the way forward. One, we need to have proof points. We need to prove that with local solutions, that with a local approach, 
and with an asset-based approach that's actually lifting up the power of our culture and our customs and our community norms, there are solutions that will be able to equip students and teachers and community members as having the, the agency that they alone right, can hold and they can wield. That's one piece. And to do that requires a total unlearning of what we have learned over time. There's been so much in our history that has told us that what we have here locally is inferior. And so what does it look like for us in the classroom to actually lift up the power of Haitian Creole, to lift up the power of Haitian proverbs, to lift up the power of our folklore, our local religions, our local customs and traditions. The other piece is figuring out what it looks like for education to actually be seen as the gateway towards liberation, to actually understand that education is not what happens in the four walls of a classroom, but actually there's such a porous relationship that needs to exist between the classroom and the community because the community has solutions. So we need to figure out a way that what happens in the classroom is a direct reflection on what we want and what we seek for our communities and our society. So how do you translate that vision, that theory of change into action? What does that look like? Sure. So for the first piece, right, in terms of shifting the mindset, One of the things I repeat often is that our teacher leaders are a product of the system that they're looking to change. And so there's been a lot of trauma in terms of them having been their students. They were in the seats and they were in the place of the students that they are now teaching. And so what does it look like to even address the fact that when I was five, six, seven, eight years old, I was told that my native tongue is inferior. What, what does that do to your psyche? What does that do to the way that you carry yourself and the way that you live, right, in your community, in your nation? Does it then shift your thinking in terms of your desire to stay in the country or seek a visa as quickly as possible and leave the country? Because, of course, everything that's outside the country is superior. And so what that looks like practically is actually including in our professional development cycles of healing, cycles of recognizing what does trauma look like when it is inflicted by a system and in by a school system that is actually supposed to be helping you advance? What does it look like for you to start to question the way that you learned your history and learned the importance of your culture? And then the second piece of this is figuring out very practical and very concrete ways that our customs and our culture can be embedded and integrated in every single subject. And so when we come together for a professional development with our teacher leaders, we are saying, why can't we use dominoes to teach math? Why can't we go by the side of the lake right near the school to teach about the environment and about science? Why can't we use local produce and local fruits and vegetables to teach about the human body and biology and what it looks like to digest certain foods? And so all of those examples are ways that we make the learning very concrete and we value and lift up the assets and the resources that exist right here in this country. And one of the things about community for us is that parents, school directors, students, teachers all have a role to play in this. And so if you think that you can pick up some techniques and methods in a training session and not be influenced and sit at the feet of the matriarchs and patriarchs of our community, the community elders, who can actually equip you so much better than a textbook can, you're actually not understanding the APA approach. It's understanding who we are and our identity as a people and understanding how that in itself is part of the solution that we need to unlock and use towards getting classrooms to where they need to be and then having them become the proof point for what our communities can be. Can you talk about corporal punishment and how APA teachers are poised or do approach it in their classrooms? 
Sure. I mean, corporal punishment, I think, is a perfect example of how we have inherited so much of our colonial past without even questioning it. Corporal punishment, right? Using a stick, using a belt, hitting children in school is very commonplace in Haiti, even though it was outlawed. It became illegal with a law in 2001. And so at LCAPYET, we've also realized, back to my point about community, those conversations can't happen behind closed doors and with our teacher leaders in the fellowship only. And so we're having those really difficult and sometimes uncomfortable conversations with school directors and parents and even kids for them to understand where did corporal punishment come from? Why is it completely in opposition to what we are promoting as human rights? What does it look like to replace it with something that's actually much more effective for the students and the teachers in our communities? So one of the things I'll never forget was talking to the young people, to talking to fifth and sixth graders and asking them their favorite subjects. And they were able to, to really talk about the Haitian Revolution with depth and like why it mattered and what it meant to them. And it was interesting because it was actually students from two different teacher leaders in APA. So what's the program's view of the importance of teaching Haitian history to young people? Mm. I think it comes from... What we have discussed and are still figuring out at NCAAIT related to a belief that says history is today. You can't figure out today without understanding the history. You can't figure out why people carry themselves, think a certain way, say certain things without figuring out and piecing together the pieces of our history. Let's understand and unpack and disentangle all the things that you have learned so far some of the maybe half-truths, let's just call them lies, that have come out in terms of some of the people in Haitian history. Um, and let's also figure out where are their silences, where are their gaps, right, in the knowledge that you understand. And what I love about the ways that our teachers are teaching history in particular, because you asked about the Haitian Revolution, is that it shows up in our everyday. And so it's not about saying, okay, we learned about 1804, we're now done, let's move on to 1950s and 1980s. We are figuring out why 1804 is actually directly linked to 2018, right? What links Toussaint Louverture, the person who was credited with kind of launching the Haitian Revolution, and our current president, right? here in Haiti, right? What links them and what does not and why? The last thing that I noticed was really striking about the Haitian students that we met today. They mentioned that they have a debt. They have a, a spirit of gratitude and appreciation towards the sacrifices of their ancestors. I think they think of their ancestors as a group, not just that one or that two or that three people, but the group of ancestors who came together and fought for something that can be again reproduced today. One of the questions I ask everybody is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? One of the ones that I walk with and I hold so dear on a regular basis is know who you are and don't forget it. It's incredibly important that I not lose sight of why, for me, this path was not coincidental. Um, I'm in it for the long haul for a reason. I'm in it for the long haul because of my mother and my father and Professor Guetta and Professor Galanopoulos and all the people who've been in my path who have shown me different pieces of what this could look like, even without my realizing that it would eventually get to a point where we were launching an organization and hopefully the seeds of the next cultural revolution in Haiti. And so the way I carry myself, the way that I choose to walk in this world, I hope I remain consistent in it because I hope I remember not only that I am the father of Gisela and Whitnick, but that I am the daughter of Haiti. I am in awe of a people who say no more. The fortitude it takes 
to know that you may be an enslaved person, but you are destined for greatness. If we can be half as strong, this next revolution will be easy. You know, in this moment, there are a lot of people who've done everything they felt like they were supposed to. They called, they emailed, they protested, they started something, and the outcomes haven't changed in the way they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? The arc is long. Uh, getting to justice may not happen in our lifetime, but there's something about being so clear-eyed in where we're going and how we choose to contribute to it and keeping things in perspective that I would continue to reinforce for those who are getting weary. I also would say it's normal and it's human to be weary. And I worry that sometimes we don't talk about the emotional toll of giving of ourselves and giving so much of our belief in our soul to work that we know is, is what we must be doing. Um, so I would first say to be weary is okay but know what it looks like to not only see the long view, but also surround yourself with people who help you see the long view. Because to only have that phrase going on and on by yourself in your own mind gets incredibly lonely. And for me, I don't think it's sustainable on a personal level. And so I think we need to be able to surround ourselves with people who believe in the long view and need to understand that if we study history, we realize that it wasn't the actions of one generation or even two or even three that got us to where we are, whether that's good or bad. Uh, but we need to understand both that the historical view helps us understand that this work is going to take many, many years, and that we need to, in some ways, humble ourselves sometimes too, to understand that we are not going to be necessarily the people who get us to the next step, but we will contribute to it as best as we can. Nadine, an honor to have you on the pod. Can't wait to get an update on how the program's running, and I can't wait to come back to Haiti. Thank you. And as a special bonus, here's a part of the conversation I had with some students in Haiti. I learned so much from them. Happy to share. It was incredible to hear you talk about uh, the ancestors. Why? Why is it important for you to learn about the revolution and the history of Haiti? Why do you think that's important? histoire révolution haïtienne histoire révolution pays ça tout ça est important oui because because the same way the ancestors did something we can do something today the same way in 1804 we did something we can do it again today we have to reproduce another thing that they did it's important because it's our right to know what our ancestors did for us. They gave their lives for us to be free, especially against the other armies that were coming. And there's a lot of things that we've lost. There was a lot of um, diamond, there was a lot of gold, there was a lot of minerals, resources. So we fought to be able to have our independence over the resources we have here. It's our right to be able to know what we have and what our history is. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.